Hello and welcome to the official podcast of Palate Exposure, featuring Alona Thompson, a podcast for those seeking the ultimate in wine, food, and travel. Each week, she interviews winemakers, chefs, celebrities, and a variety of guests that shape the way we enjoy life. And um, ended up making four and a half barrels, 107 cases of Pinot Noir that, that first year. And I got to thank two people on that. Um, uh, the Julia I in Tosca was the winemaker at Lambert Bridge, and she let us do that. But even more than Julia, there's a guy that worked there named Hanaro. He managed the cellar, and he was the one that would guide us through, like, using the equipment, things like that, you know, and would double check with us and, and I think there are a lot of unsung heroes like Hanaro in the business that are people that work in the cellar that do a lot of the hard work on a daily basis um, and Hanaro really helped us um, make the wine helped to make sure we clean the equipment so Julia didn't get pissed off at us for leaving the equipment behind dirty or that kind of thing and um, uh, we made those four and a half barrels worth of Pinot and, and we thought they were pretty good. You know, shout out to him, of course, and really, it's worth a mention, the goodwill in the industry. In the way, it, I've always been amazed at the level of camaraderie and, you know, being helpful and kind of this mentality tied lists all boats. Um, that's so precious. And I think that's what makes the wine country great, um, is that. So I, I also want to point out Anderson Valley, how fortuitous, and I would say visionary, even though you didn't know it at the time, to call fruit from Anderson because it became that Pinot Mecca um, gradually, but very strongly. It's a small valley, um, but the the fruit from Anderson is some of my favorite examples of California Pinot Noir. It has this transparency and elegance. And you mentioned the vineyard, of course, was right across the street from late great Mila Handley, the godmother of it all. Uh, in Anderson. So I just find it so fascinating that that was your first commercial production. And Mila, we got to know, uh, I mean, we would go up there, we would camp at Hindi Woods, um, and we would do the thinning ourselves over a couple of days. Um, but we got to know Mila, we'd go over there and taste, we became members of the, the we thought it was incumbent upon us to learn as much as we could. Uh, so we became members of the, the Hanley uh, Club, we became members of Navarro, Greenwood Ridge, <laughs> all of the places where you could go through and taste and learn about Pinos. And Mila would have us over and eventually as members, we got to stay in the guest house there sometimes. And it was just a close, close relationship at the time. I agree with you. Anderson Valley is um, still not as well known as you might think it would be. I think there's a number of reasons for that. It's not the easiest place necessarily to get to, at least compared to Napa and Sonoma. It's a little bit of a winding hour drive there. Um, there's not an awful lot of places to eat, places to stay up there, certainly compared to Napa and Sonoma. And mm -hmm. Um, I actually think there's about half the population, I'm just guessing, that doesn't want it to be discovered, too. I mean, there are people that really love the, the, the promotion of the area, and there are other groups that are like, no, let's keep all these people bright lighters is what they call it. They even have their own language called bootling, <laughs> their own dialect called bootling up there, and bright lighters for people from San Francisco. And, you know, that they are, you know, let's try to keep those people out. There's some of that mentality amongst some of the old timers up there as well. No, it's definitely a subculture, but it's so wonderful. I feel like Alice in Wonderland moment when I go to Anderson, you kind of fall into that hole and nothing is the same. Yes. Uh, but 
I have to say the quality of the fruit and, you know, first of all, it's a sparkling wine country. People don't even realize how much sparkling wine comes from Anderson. Um, but on the Pinot side, there's been some brands that I would put next to top flight Burgundy all day. Yeah. And nobody even knows about them. Some of them, unfortunately, are now defunct. But there's, um, if you guys know Cliff Lady, they have a brand called Fell with from Anderson. So there's some prominence, in other words, um, on the Pinot side that I think is more popularized. But if you're a true blue Pinot lover, I don't think you can afford to miss that spot. It really is very special, very soulful. It is. It is. Um, a little uh, callback to Alsace, too, with some of the other grape types that they do. Oh, my God. Well. Yes. They used to do a festival that's called Alsatian, Alsatian Varieties, in, in addition to the Pinot Fest that they did every year. And that was my very favorite. And I go to a lot of events, <laughs> as you do, I'm sure. Um, but that was one of my favorites, the Alsatian Varieties, the white aromatic. Uh, they were extraordinary. Again, world-class, so much fun. So anyway, the festival's gone, but the wines from Anderson are still there. And I would really urge the listeners to discover them for themselves. It's, it's quite worthwhile. So there you were, 107 cases. Yep. Very special, 94, great California, again, classic vintage. Um, how did it go? Did you sell out? So our friends would tell us that the wine was good, but you know they were your friends, so you didn't really know to trust them. We thought that it was good, but we were a little too close to it. And one day we were working and we were drinking with some customers in the middle of the afternoon and a fax came in from the wine advocate saying that Robert Parker, the wine writer, was staying over at Meadowood. He was out for a Zap event and looking for samples of wines to try while he was out. So we go back home, we open a bottle of wine, we have some dinner, maybe a second bottle of wine. Um, actually, we didn't have dinner. We were starting to, we were starting to cook dinner. And we're like, we should really take a sample of our wine to Parker. So we abandoned dinner, drive up to, um, uh, up to Lambert Bridge, pull a sample out of the four and a half barrels, hand label it, cork it by hand, a little hand corker, hand label it, handwritten note about the wines, drive over to Meadowood, leave it with the concierge, stop at a restaurant called Trilogy, which used to exist in St. Lena. Uh, it was right on the main drag there. I think we had two more bottles of wine, drive back over the hill, which I don't really recommend. Uh, uh, but woke up the next morning and had one of those what did we do last night kind of moments. And uh, then it dawned on us that we had left a sample for um, for Parker. So I got on the phone uh, quickly with Meadowood trying to get the sample back because thinking we would get some horrible, horrible rating for the wine. And oh my God. Uh, the guy, uh, the concierge at Meadowood, of course, is, is very polite as they all are at Meadowood. And uh, he tells me that, um, no, I'm sorry, Mr. Parker got up early this morning and already got the sample. And so oh, my God, I hang up the phone and I tell him, thank you. Thank you very much. I hang up the phone. Diana could only hear one end of the conversation. So she didn't know what happened. So she asked me, well, what did he say? And my response to her was, he said that we're fucked because <laughs> I, <laughs> um, uh, you know, uh, we thought we were going to get some horrible, horrible rating. Uh, we came home about three weeks later, and there's a message on the answering machine from Parker saying that he tasted the wine, thought it was terrific, but he lost all the notes on it, and could we fax those over to him, which we did. And 
something like seven or eight weeks after that, um, the advocate came out. It, we were one of the top 10 Pinot Noirs from California that year, printed our phone number, which was our home phone number because we didn't have a business line. And people started calling up wanting to buy the wine and we sold, um, we sold it all on futures, which allowed us to make wine the next year. What a phenomenal story. I've never heard it in its entirety. I knew that Robert Parker, the great Robert Parker, um, was involved, but I didn't realize how touch and go it was for you. Oh yeah, I mean, I, well, first off, that, I mean, we spent all $24,000 we had on that first vintage. So there would not have been a second vintage of Siduri had um, something not worked out. I mean, we needed the income to make it happen that, that, uh, that next year. And then secondly, I mean, you can look back on it and I've had a lot of drunk nights in my life that haven't worked out nearly as well <laughs> as this one did. Um, so it's, it was, yeah, I mean, we were lucky in a lot of ways. But I think one of the keys there is that when you do find yourself getting lucky, it's a question then of walking through that door. When the door is open for you by chance, yeah. you then make a decision as to whether or not you walk through it and how you take advantage of that. And that's what we did by growing the brand from there. There's just sliding doors concept again, but it also feels like uh, divine intervention, providence. It feels like it just came together. I think... The part of it that really feels that way to me is the fact that it was the 94 vintage in particular that that year, had we done it in 93, which was not a, a bad year necessarily, but certainly mm -hmm. not of that level. I don't know that we would have ha been able to um, really have the success we did. Just the fact that it happened, not what happened only, it's partially what happened, but that it happened when it happened is the divine intervention part almost that it seems like. You know, we talked about in the beginning of the dialogue of you being so incredibly honest and many people in your position say, well, you know, we made the wine and Robert Parker liked it and there you go. The fact that you so accountable to all the elements that led you that propelled this and, and created that momentum that was so necessary for the young startup, for a young brand, just makes people love you even more. Because I've always thought, you know, we all get where we get through sometimes some difficult uh, paths and challenging paths or fortunate paths or whatever, but it's not, you know, I'd love to take responsibility. I, I, the one thing I've always said about Diana and I is that we've made tons and tons and tons of mistakes, um, but we've tended not to repeat the same mistakes twice. And there you so go. That's incredibly important, I think, in, um, in this wine making business. When you get a chance to only make wine once a year, sometimes it's hard to remember back, what was another year like this? What was another, and that is challenging in some ways. Um, if you do something every day, well, I'll give you a good example. I mean, later on in making wine, but we had um, the two hottest vintages that I've ever dealt with were 2003 and 2004, two very, very hot vintages. We did far better in 2004 than we did in 2003 because those years were back to back. And you looked at 2003 and said, what did we do that worked? What did we do that didn't work? Let's do more of what worked and less of what didn't work. Um, 2005, I think we did very, very well, a long, cool growing season, um, ideal for Pinot. But I think there are a couple of things we should have done better. 
but the only year that we had really that was akin to 2005 was um, 1995 and it had been 10 years. And so you have to go back into your notes, which at that time we didn't have it well set up. I mean, only our second year making wine in 95. Um, we had to go back to our notes. We had to look at what we could remember and, and figure out. And sometimes the notes were on the back of napkins from Adele's diner and um, there in Healdsburg. We would, um, things like that were, are harder when you only, when the last time you had an experience like this was 10 years ago, it's harder to learn from that experience. You know, that makes so much sense. Um, and somebody very intelligent said, life unexamined is not worth living. And like going back to the past and really connecting the dots in your own mind, you know, we all know people that have quote unquote arrived in any realm, not just wine. And all of a sudden their stories get edited and, you know, publicists rewrite the talking points and it just becomes this character um, that's much harder to relate to because all of a sudden they get from here to there overnight seemingly and the truth is a lot more difficult but a lot more interesting and beautiful in its own way of all those mistakes all those trials yes 1995 uh, second year of making wine we got fruit again from anderson valley from the rose vineyard uh we got fruit incredibly fortuitous fruit from David Hirsch out at Hirsch Vineyard. Mm -hmm. uh, David, uh, we had gone out there and um, obviously we're familiar with the vineyard. It was one of the few places in California at the time uh, that was vineyard designated. I mean, certainly William Selium had Rocchioli and Allen and a few other places, but um, it had gained some notoriety and we don't think we're going to get, I mean, what are our odds? But we took a chance to see if we could get some fruit uh, from there. And David ended up selling us three quarters of an acre worth of fruit that, that first year. And we asked him one time, Diana did ask him why he sold to us. And he said, well, my vineyard was starting to get some notoriety. People were really liking the wines a lot. Um, but I wasn't completely sure at the time if the if it was the vineyard or was it the quality of the winemakers. So I wanted to sell to the two of you because you didn't know what you were doing. And if the wine turned out to be good, I could say it was the quality of the grapes that made the difference. Um, it's kind of a backhanded compliment, I suppose, but what an adorable story. Yeah, wow. what got us the grapes. And then the general manager at Lambert Bridge, where we were making wine, uh, saw what we did with that first Pinot and said, Adam, I have some land up in Oregon that I planted. Will you be interested in getting grapes? So we got fruit from Oregon in 1995, which was a disastrous year in Oregon. Um, really, really challenging. We had issue after issue after issue on that wine. And yet it ended up, it was funny, the Hirsch Vineyard was still probably one of the top five or so wines I think that I've ever made in my life, that 95 Hirsch. That 95 Oregon, Diane and I were very disappointed in it. Uh, rained a lot, uh, unexpectedly, um, just a long, cool, uh, wet, wet year up there. Um, we lowered the price by about 70% compared to our other wines and thought at that price point, having tasted a bunch of Oregon stuff, it was a fair value. It wasn't anything special, but it would be fair. We wouldn't have lost our money, that kind of thing. Turned out that the wine spectator that year gave that Hirsch that I still love, gave it 87 points, gave that Oregon Pinot 91. It was tied with Archery Summit for the highest rated Oregon Pinot Noir that year. Um, and that was the year that we learned that when it comes to wine ratings and wine critics, you oftentimes get things you don't deserve, which means sometimes you get worse ratings than you 
deserve and other times you get better ratings than you deserve and you have to take them all together you cannot go around you can't go around and saying Jim Lobby really knows what he's talking about when he gives you a 95 but say Jim Lobby has no clue what he's talking about when he gives you an 85 I mean you can't do that it's like sometimes it's just um, it's fortune. You make the best wine that you believe in and don't, the critics helped us, but you don't make wine for the critics. You make wine for yourself. That is such a healthy mentality. You know, being a member of the media and of course judging some as well, it is so incredibly subjective and there's so many contributing characteristics to any given moment in time when you're experiencing any given wine that to say that it's an imperfect science is a gross understatement. And that's what you just described, is that if you hinge on that, um, then, you know, you might be in trouble. Well, you deal with so many different people in the media. I mean, your colleagues, people like that. Mm -hmm. And you yeah. realize that if I was making wine for you, mm -hmm. that would be great. And I might do incredibly well in your publication, but that wouldn't mean that one of your colleagues wouldn't not like the wine as much. Okay. And so I can't do that. I cannot tailor each wine for a particular person. I have to tailor it reflecting the place that it came from and my own interpretation of that particular place. Absolutely, I think that's really kind of the North Star that everybody should take note of that are in productions that please don't cater to any particular palate. Uh, you know, really do the best by the grower, by your own brand and you'll be fine long-term. Yeah, I agree. I agree. That is the, the way to do it. So that year was very, it taught us a lot. Uh, um, we had three years in a row in Oregon, 95, 96, 97, that made us wonder why in the world we were making Oregon Pinot Noir. And then 98 came along, which was a wonderful, wonderful year. And all of a sudden it was like, okay, we get it now. It's fantastic. Um, but it took us a while. Oregon has changed a lot more than any of the other areas that I get fruit from, um, that it has gone from a place of great inconsistency to a place where we are having much higher quality vintages on a much more consistent basis. I think you see that in Burgundy too, by large, over that amount of time. I noticed your portfolio grew quite quickly. Yeah. Um, and really kind of exponentially. Um, I've tasted, as you know, a lot of your wines over the years, and I've always been amazed that they're so different. Well, they come from different fruit source and all that stuff, but also that you're able to manage such an extensive, you know, corral of wines and they're all were executed so well. I was always fascinated by that. It required an awful lot of time on the road. Diana and I ended up splitting up a lot of Siduri grape sourcing eventually, particularly once we had, our, our son was born in 99, where she dealt with a lot more of the Russian River Sonoma County sourcing. And mm -hmm. I would be the one that would go down to Santa Lucia Highlands. We got fruit from Gary Pizzoni starting in 1997. Uh, Santa Rita Hills, we got fruit from Clopepe starting in 2000 and up to Oregon. So I would do more of the far-flung ones she would do more of the local vineyards. Uh, and in fact, we got into the first uh, Russian River vineyard we got into was Kiefer Ranch in 2000. Wow. And we had tried to get into Kiefer before, but Marcy didn't have any fruit. Uh, Marcy Kiefer did not have fruit. Mm -hmm. But when Diana took out Christian, who was born in July of 99, took him out in like March or April of 2000. And Marcy didn't have any grandchildren at the time. And, um, 
you know, so Christian helped us get <laughs> the nice. first Russian River at that time. So he was already working it and didn't know that. Yeah. <laughs> what motivated you? I think I suspect I know the answer, but you know, managing that many vineyard sources, um, you know, and it's just the two of you. What motivated you to expand your portfolio? Yeah. So first off the simple fact of the matter is we did not have a plan. I mean, we had no business plan. Uh, when great grapes came our way, um, the opportunities might be too good to pass up. Mm -hmm. That took a little while to get to the point that people who had truly great grapes that had some reputation would think of selling to, uh, selling to Sideri. So if you, you, you consider it, uh, 1997 vintage was the first year that we got fruit from the Pizzoni vineyard. I mean, it's still one of, currently one of California's most um, uh, acclaimed vineyards. I mean, it's a source of yeah. incredible fruit. But the first vineyard designated wines were 1996 from Pizzoni. So it was not an acclaimed vineyard when we started out there. Okay. We got the Gary's vineyard in 99, which was the first crop there. Rosella's in 2001, which was the first Pinot crop there. We got uh, Clopepe in 2000 down in Santa Rita Hills, which was the first crop there. Kargasaki in 2001, that was the first crop there. So we were really at the beginning of a lot of these places. And that's because if we had gone to Rocchioli, he was selling to William Selliam and I believe a little bit to Gary Farrell, but he didn't really have a lot of extra grapes and they were in demand. So we had to go to places that were not as well known yet and um, try to make them into something which led us to kind of a more far-flung way uh, of doing things. The other aspect of that is that Diana and I never took a winemaking course. We really um, never studied winemaking. We learned a lot on our own. Um, we, I like to tell people I've got 70 harvests under my belt and there's like, there's no way you have 70 harvests. You know, you're not, I'm old, but I'm not that old. But, um, and, but I look at an Oregon harvest different than a Northern California harvest than a Central Coast harvest. And so oftentimes we're dealing with three harvests in one year and you learn an awful, awful lot about each place. Um, and it helps you make better wine. So um, warmer years in Oregon helped us in hotter years in California. Cold years in Oregon helped us make better wines in California in cold vintages. It, it increased our, our knowledge exponentially rather than just one on top of the other on top of the other. You know, it's really a fascinating backstory. And I suspected part of it um, when I thought I knew part of the answer is that really um, creating those relationships with growers and, you know, in essence, yeah. elevating the brand of the vineyard um, with your skill set. It's so important. Our growers became our friends. They were, we were partners with them in this new thing called Pinot Noir, mm -hmm. relatively new thing on the public consciousness. I mean, obviously we mentioned some of the people who've been around forever, but from a public consciousness point of view, we were partners with them um, as were the other wineries that were trying to do the same thing. We were really um, trying to push that rock up the hill of Pinot and get it in front of people's attention. It was, uh, um, it was a really wonderful, started to be somewhat heady time. It really became heady after Sideways came along, but that, that thing. The other third aspect I wanted to mention real quickly too that I think made a difference is because neither Diana or I 
studied winemaking, we weren't confident enough to think that we could do what Bert and Ed did, which is still remarkable at William Sully. I still, you know, the idea that Rocchioli tasted that different from Allen, and yet they were across the street from each other, basically, or just down the road. These places tasted so different, all within the Russian River Valley. What William Sullivan did there was incredible. The fact that our Willamette Valley Pinot Noir tasted different than our Kiefer Ranch, than our Pizzoni, than our Clopepe, that really wasn't, didn't require great winemaking skill on our part. It required us simply reflecting the place in the particular wine, not trying to make sure or not, we didn't think we were skilled enough to say these two places right next to each other would show that differently. And Bert and Ed did make that happen, obviously, so. And probably add another piece to this. Your brand from its inception has been remarkably consumer centric. I remember being on the other side of the table many times and how incredibly friendly and informative you are. I mean, your you know, table booth, whatever, has always been very, very active with people, just really engaged with you. And it was fascinating how uh, you interacted with the consumer. Way before Sideways, by the way, before the varietal became like, you know, all that, you know, popular. Um, you had um, a way about you, thoughtfulness, but this really welcoming attitude you know, you didn't exclude anybody. You didn't, you know, you didn't make anybody feel like they belong on the outside of the velvet rope. No, and I think one of the things that was important, um, it was to talk to consumers, to media, to people like that, with the assumption that they have some knowledge, intelligence, interest in some of the finer details of what you are doing. Uh, and so it's not like, okay, here's our big fruity Pinot Noir, here's our lighter, prettier Pinot Noir. It's like, these are these clones, or we used less new oak on this. I mean, sometimes in those larger tastings, you have to boil it down to a couple of sentences, because if there's, it's crowded at the table, but at least give them some additional information about the particular wine that has some detail is showing them the respect that they deserve for having come by and shown interest in your wine. I think that's that's wonderful and just was such um, you know obviously shining light from the very beginning you know whether it was a tasting in San Francisco or there is an event that I frequented that I love that you were always at World of Pinot Noir it's changed somewhat over the years since now it's Santa Barbara area but it used to be in a little beach town called Pismo Beach yep. um, beautiful location right in the cliffs and just um, again it's kind of a mecca it's a destination for people that really adore and admire the varietal and having such intimate experience. It's and funny, I love that event when it was on the cliffs there. I thought mm -hmm. it was fantastic. Mm -hmm. um, in, in, in Santa Barbara, it's in a larger hotel. I don't know that it has quite that feeling that it did, but mm -hmm. I do remember one year when it was pouring down rain and under the, under the tents out by the cliffs and there's actually like a river running through your table and all I know, of that. I remember that actually. <laughs> yeah, I'm like, okay. The, the big hotel's better in the, in crappier weather, the big hotel's better. In gorgeous weather, being yeah. out by the cliffs on the ocean was better, so. Um, and you also did, um, you know, tastings in your own winery, in your cellar, which uh, also some of my favorites because the diversity of the portfolio, again, that intimate connection with the brand. And I saw a lot of happy faces there. 
that was a big deal for us moving into our own facility. So we did custom crush for the first few years. And, and that's a big step I, that I was going to miss. So thank you for bringing that up. Absolutely. Making that step into moving into your own place was a huge financial step, as was hiring our first employee, uh, which happened, they happened close to one another, 98 and 99. Those were the um, big steps where it became a, a real thing. Diana quit her full-time job first and went to work for Siduri full-time. I ended up working kind of as consulting um, in exchange basically for health insurance more than anything else for a year and then um, ended up uh, quitting full-time uh, and going full-time for Siduri. Uh, but those steps were big. Those were scary times. I mean, in some ways, we didn't know enough to be scared in 94, 95 when we started it out. Mm -hmm. When you start taking on the responsibility of a rent payment for your warehouse facility, when you start taking on someone else's, that, that's even more scary. The, 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 a person, an employee, that their ability to make their rent and their, to their payments are somewhat dependent upon the success of your winery because you're paying them. That, mm -hmm. that became um, scary and a good bit more pressure at some point in time. And you had a young family. I mean, everything yeah. all at once. And I'm just like, I have goosebumps, honestly. The fact that you self-taught, that you're self-financed in, in really every way that's feasible. Yep. Um, and you took such a chance um, on yourself. I, I think that's probably the most seminal part of the conversation is that deep down through all the fear, like at the gut level, you believed. Yeah. We always did, always believed in our ability to do this, our ability to, um, as long as we didn't bottle something that we thought was inferior, if we sold off on bulk or we did something, or if we made a wine, it's hard to say inferior because sometimes we would make a lower price, like Sonoma County type wine that was very good value. But I mean, that's where you would, our goal was always to make the best, uh, individual expression of say Kiefer Ranch or Vanderkamp, you know, some of these smaller places. But then if there were certain barrels that didn't go into it, if we could make a very good Sonoma County Pinot or Russian River Valley Pinot at a very fair price, we thought that was incredibly important as well. I really want to spotlight this. To me, your wines have always been value propositions. I've talked about it quite a bit because it's continuously was the truth. As people got more recognized and got higher ratings, some of the Pinot Noir producers raised their prices and that's okay. Um, but you chose, you chose deliberately to keep it very consumer friendly in terms of price points. I always believed that if the wine was $40 last year and it's 41 or 42 this year, no consumer is going to be upset about that. I mean, they understand inflation. They understand that prices go up. You did a 5% increase. They get it. I think where you end up pissing off people, if it was $40 last year and it's $80 the next year, then that bothers people tremendously. So having reasonable price increases virtually every single year to keep up with the cost of inflation, people would understand that and it would not create a, an issue in your relationship with consumers. You really nurtured that sense of goodwill, that trust with your audience, which I think, again, is, as a business, um, that's one-on-one. That, that has to happen. And I think that's what 
kind of really made people embrace your brand and stick to it. I bet you your attrition was pretty low on your mailing list. It's a hunch. Really was. It was incredibly low on the mailing list. Um, and that was one of the things that, that ultimately was a, a big draw in some ways for when we did end up selling the winery five and a half years ago now, that was a big draw um, was the fact that we had such a devoted following. And you really, you know, with everything that you did with, on a daily basis, nurtured that. This is not something that stops, you know, it continues on the road, it continues at wine events um, with trade. Yep. You know, everybody, it's it's an effort that requires all hands on deck in every area of business, doesn't it? It does. It requires all hands on deck. It requires you hiring people that you trust, that you know well to represent the winery. Because as you got a little bit larger, you know, if I was on the road, um, we had to have somebody at the winery. Mm -hmm. Or if, if I'm at the winery, sometimes someone else is on the road. You had to have people that really represented what Siduri was, that they were part of that larger family. And, you know, over the years, I've got friends, Greg, he's now, oddly enough, um, up at Handley Cellars. He was our GM for a little bit, and he's up at Handley now. So Greg, one of our good friends, and he hired us at Lambert Bridge. He was there and hired us to work at Lambert Bridge. We ended up hiring him, and now he is up at Hanley. So you have people like that, Jody and Kate. Kate works out at Costa Brown. Um, you, we've got uh, the winemaker at Brander, uh, Fabian. Fabian's first harvest was at Siduri, first year that he ever worked. Um, there was a guy that came up, uh, and uh, Carl. Carl came. He was in the medical field in San Francisco. And he came up, he was customers and said, can I come work a week? So he came and worked a week or two. Uh, he is now with Bob Cabral as winemaker at Three Sticks Winery. Of course, um, yeah. Just no. these people that, that were all part of our, that they, they trace their beginnings back to us in some ways is pretty amazing yeah. to me. You're like a Steglin of Sonoma in that sense. You know, everybody staged their trainer at some point. It's like a Kevin Bacon you know, seven degrees maximum of separation Perfect. in the white country, isn't it? Yeah, it, it could be in some ways, honestly. I hadn't thought about that. <laughs> wouldn't quite put myself in the Kevin Bacon category, but whatever, yes, there is some you of- You know what I mean? It's yes. just, it's like you always running to the same faces and there's also a lesson in leadership there someplace that you, um, you mentioned like what it takes to really um, raise the brand, right? It's, it's not just you, it's galvanizing those talents that help you articulate the message consistently and, and engage. The conclusion of this interview can be found in the next podcast, already available for your download. Thanks again for tuning in to the official podcast of Pal Exposure, featuring Alona Thompson. 